Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, just back in New York City, uh, where it is warm and uh, the COVID limitations are all being lifted as of may 19th as of two two weeks from now new york new jersey and connecticut are effectively limited lifting all of the COVID restrictions we'll talk about that in a second we are joined here also in new york city ish by max boot of the council on foreign relations of washington post how are you max i'm good and i am actually in nyc no no ish required (laughs) <laughs> in 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 NYC and in Washington DC we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times hi Ed hello how are you and um in America's great midwest um not the uh, midwest for god's sake david great plains the great west plains. west mountain west <laughs> in the mountain west in America's great mountain west establishing her homestead we have Rosa Brooks. Then yes, and I'm going to buy you a map of the United States. He already has a map. It's the one from the New Yorker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. To me, it's like there's the it's east. Not a useful as a road. The west, and then there's flyover. No, of course not. Um, uh, it's it's great to have you representing the Mountain West. Um, so there are a bunch of stories that have been in the news in the past few days. And I just thought, I'm going to throw them out there. I'm going to throw out some provocative theses about them, I guess, maybe not provocative. Let each one of you respond to them. We'll just sort of go through them in rapid fire. I want to pick up on one that ties to this uh, New York development, because it seems that, you know, we're about to enter or we're entering a new chapter in this global pandemic um, where the United States is moving rapidly towards normalcy. That's not to say there aren't outbreaks, there aren't problems, there isn't a big issue with vaccine resistance, Um, but certainly moving in a positive direction. Europe's floundering about. And India uh, and Brazil are in a big mess. And, you know, Ed, your paper today had quite a a lead in, uh, in in a story called Stories from Inside India's COVID Disaster no one has seen anything like this. And the opening sentence was, India is in the throes of one of its darkest moments since independence as a catastrophic second COVID wave tears through with dizzying speed. And um, we know that uh, uh, one day last week, I think last Thursday, there were 400,000 reported cases of COVID, uh, 3,500 reported deaths. The death toll is actually probably a multiple of that. Uh, But what it looks like is you could have some of the richer countries in the world, certainly the U.S., rebounding, showing great economic growth. Um, 
and some of the poor countries in the world um, uh, and, and some that are just simply badly run entering a new period of, of being shut off from the world and suffering uh, both from the pandemic and in terms of uh, economics. And, and, you know, this, this next several months or next year could be a real chapter of, of growing um, tension over that. And I'm just I'll go around the group and get get your reactions to it. Let me, let me start with you, Max. The, the only person left on the conversation who can actually comment. So this will be a great uh, yeah, dialogue be between monologue. you and me. It'll be a monologue. It'll be go a on. monologue. Well, okay. Um, obviously, no no room for levity in talking about what's happening in India. I mean, it's just catastrophic and horrifying. And of course, you know, as as you rightly say, there's the, the possibility that other countries, you know, whether it's the Philippines or Indonesia or others, relatively impoverished countries could suffer in a similar way, even as the developing world or the developed world rather is coming back to some semblance of normalcy. And of course, the United States is one of the leaders in that in that development because of how rapidly the Biden administration is, is getting people vaccinated. The Europeans are you know, a few months behind, but probably only a few months behind. So, you know, it's certainly likely the way things are going now that the uh, that even despite the vaccine resistance and the unwillingness of some people to get vaccinated, it seems likely that, you know, life will be pretty back to much back to normal in the U.S. and Europe by the end of the year. And clearly, uh, you know, it's going to take a longer timeline in India and other countries that are getting just so devastated right now. I mean, the consequences of that is, as you suggest, will probably just be to, to uh, exacerbate and, and, and increase the, the global divide between the haves and the have nots. Uh, and of course, you know, when you're talking about this pandemic, uh, you know, no, no country is an island, even if they're physically an island. I mean, we're all connected together by this global web of commerce and travel um, and humanity, and, you know, I think we all have a, a stake in, in, in beating this virus together. So, you know, I would certainly hope that as we are reaching our highest levels of vaccination in the U.S., the Biden administration will be able to pivot and, and do more uh, to help our, our friends and neighbors all around the world who are still struggling with this horrible disease. And I, you know, I think to Biden's credit, I think he is starting to do that. He has pledged money for the global vaccine initiative. He's sent uh, plane loads of relief supplies to India, but clearly the Biden administration is still playing it relatively cautiously because they have a lot of orders for vaccines in yet, but they don't know how much they're actually going to get. And they don't want to have any charges that they are neglecting uh, the home front to help foreigners. But I, you know, I think at this point, uh, we're, we're very rapidly going to be in a situation where anybody who wants the vaccine is going to be able to get it. So I, I think we certainly need to step, our, step up our efforts uh, to help the rest of the world recover. Rosa, what do, what, what do you think the implications of half the world heading in one direction and half the world heading in another direction? Or actually the top 10% heading in one direction and the rest heading in another you know, I think there's a piece of this that is science related and a piece of this that is just cultural and economic. Um, you know, the science related piece, I don't feel qualified to opine on. I, I certainly have seen headlines on an article suggesting that in terms of the risk of variants that, that might be 
resistant to the current vaccines that the danger of having a large segment of the world be unvaccinated, um, it, you know, it will come back and eventually hit us, or at least there's a very significant chance that it could hit, up, hit us. And I, I don't really obviously know how to evaluate that myself, but it's, it's a nerve wracking possibility. And, and certainly even aside from whatever equity issues and the equity issues are obviously very strong as well. Uh, it certainly seems like if there's any possibility whatsoever that having a big chunk of the world be unvaccinated puts the entire world at risk, then I think we all have to treat that as, a, as an urgent international security matter. Culturally and, and economically, I think, I think it's, you know, it's obviously, as, as, as Max was saying, it's, it's, going to, it's going to exacerbate uh, the, the divide between the global north and the global south. It's going to further the sense uh, in much of the world that the wealthy nations don't care that much about what happens elsewhere. Uh, that's going to be something that I think will, you know, come back to bite us in, in years to come, uh, particularly, obviously, notwithstanding the current crisis in India, you know, India is going to be an extremely powerful country in the future. Uh, we're going to have to reckon with, with India as an economic force, uh, as a political force, and just not being viewed by India as part of the solution there, I think is, is going to, is going to really hurt us. And it, I, you know, I also just, boy, um, just from a from a strictly economic point of view, I think one of the things that became crushingly clear to all Americans in the early stages of the pandemic was that even if there's no risk of, you know, new viral variants coming this way from other countries, uh, that the 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 medical crisis, which leads to social crisis, which leads to economic crises in other countries, hits us right in the supply chain. Uh, you know, where we really are, are feeling it still in many, in many sectors. And, you know, to me, this is obviously, I didn't need a whole lot of persuading, but, but, but I would think, I wish that, that to my Republican friends hanging out in Wyoming and so on, it seems to me this should be an object lesson and why we just have to care about the rest of the world. It's, it's completely irrelevant whether we want to care about the rest of the world, we have to care about the rest of the world because we're all so interconnected now. Absolutely right. Um, Mr. Luce, what do you think about this, where it's headed? Well, uh, this weekend had a rather surreal experience where um, uh, the doorbell rang, went down, and it was somebody from the District of Columbia uh, government offering a vaccine. Uh, they're going out now and going door to door and saying, are you signed up? You can sign up here. Here are your options. We're getting to the stage where there are so many vaccines and where there are obviously still a number of um, hesitant people that they're pushing it on you, not you searching online restlessly to get an appointment anymore. India is at least a year away from that. Um, the fact that um, until March, India had only ordered 20 million uh, vials, uh, doses um, from um, its own two big vaccine producers um, shows just how complacent um, the Indian government was that they defeated the pandemic and that, that India had herd immunity without any scientific evidence, by the way, in terms of the, um, the testing to back that up. Um, uh, 11 weeks ago, India was having um, an average of about 10,000 new infections every day. It's now having 400,000 new infections every day. And this is almost certainly a massive undercount. Not a mild, not a mild undercount, a massive one. Um, 
the numbers I'm seeing, the estimates I'm seeing is more like a million new infections a day, and therefore more like six or 7,000 deaths a day. Um, it's a very, very long way from being anywhere close um, to e even getting, um, you know, it's uh, um, hospital frontline workers in the cities vaccinated. So we're talking about a year, if things go well, of rolling out um, vaccines across India, during which time the mutation sort of horizon is massive. Um, so clearly, you know, and you and I, have, David, have discussed this before, um, clearly India cannot do, you know, the rupee cannot sustain what the dollar can sustain. It cannot pay its economy to stay at home. They cannot afford to do that in emerging markets. Um, they need to defeat the virus as quickly as possible. There is no sort of other way around this. Um, and they can't do it on their own, in spite of the fact they've got huge vaccine production. They've, they've got to do it with massive international assistance. We in America and in most parts of the West, well, in many parts of the West, have massively over-ordered vaccines for, for very good precautionary reasons, um, you know, for fear that one of them might not work um, or that there'll be variations. Um, that um, you know we can tweak the vaccines to um, accommodate. Uh, we've got tons of surplus vaccine supply coming online. We need to, for our own self-interest, have a Marshall Plan um, for global vaccination. Um, we need to, for humanitarian reasons as well, but first and foremost, for, foremost for our own self-protection. I'm pleased to see the Biden administration is debating whether to delicense the technology behind uh, the mRNA vaccines. I think that that would be a very important gesture um, in aid of, uh, of its desire to lead the global vaccination drive. And I, I very much hope they come down on that side to delicense, that they take on Big Pharma and, and take that step. Yeah, I think they mentioned that they were gonna do that several months ago, actually, and it's a question of when they implement um, that step. And I think they've been balancing that between, you know, how do we ensure we're out of the woods before we, 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 we start, uh, you know, doing some of these things for other countries. And I'd like to pick up with a very quick follow-up question to you that's then going to follow into the, the follow-up with everybody else. But, you know, Modi has handled this disastrously. Um, the United States is saying we're, you know, that has made a, a big bet, particularly under this administration now, on a focus on the Indo-Pacific region. China's the most important sort of counterparty in the world. The most important counterbalance to China in, in many respects is India. Can this produce political instability, a step back for democracy in India? the kind of things that can just blow up that calculation? So I think it's a very good and it's a very pertinent question. Um, the Modi administration, you know, since 2014 has been rolling back liberties in, in India. Um, the court system is now sort of organized. It's eating out of his hand on most issues. Dissent is now being punished. People are being um, struck off. Newspapers are being um, a fold, uh, dissenting newspapers are finding it harder and harder to make ends meet. Um, and uh, things are difficult there. So I, I fully understand um, and support what the Biden administration is doing with 
the Quad, which is, you know, India, US, Japan, and um, Australia. Um, and uh, it, it's, there's no doubt that India um, is keen to be much more um, coordinating with the United States and those other two countries than it was before the recent border incident with China, you know, where Chinese troops clubbed Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan border, the disputed border. So clearly India and the United States share an interest. They share interests. Do they share values? Uh, I'm not so sure about that anymore. I think Modi is the, perhaps the most um, dangerous strongman um, to democracy in the world. There are worse strongmen strong in non-democracies, but there's no bigger strongman in the de democratic world than Modi. And he is a neo-fascist. Um, I, I don't use that word lightly. He is a neo-fascist. Um, so we're going to have to navigate these, these complexities. It's definitely part of the picture. Yeah, I mean, Max, I, I want to pick up with this with, and hear both from you and, and Rosa. We, you know, we, we're, we're making finally the pivot. We're making the pivot to what we're finally calling the Indo-Pacific region because we realize the importance of India. Um, Biden has analogized between, you know, the quad and our commitment to those partners and NATO. And the biggest one of these partners, you know, their future hangs, hangs in the balance. They may not be a democracy a year from now. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think the, you know, the, the anti-democratic course that Modi has been on is deeply dismaying. And, and it's, you know, truly terrible that this country that for so long has bragged about being the world's largest democracy is becoming less democratic all the time. I don't think that necessarily means it's going to torpedo our possible alignment with India versus China. I mean, remember, even when you're talking about NATO, it's hardly been a, an alliance of perfect democracies for many years uh, during the Cold War, both uh, Turkey and Greece were not democracies. Portugal was hardly a democracy. Right now, Turkey is not a democracy. And of course, we do have a difficult relationship uh, with them, but they are still in, in NATO. And obviously, we have allies who are even more problematic than, than India. I mean, Saudi Arabia is way more repressive uh, than India. So, you know, I, I think in this case, although I'm a big believer in uh, in, in, in the uses of American ideals and American foreign policy. We also have a long record of striking bargains with less savory regimes uh, for reasons of realpolitik, including, of course, I mean, remember, you know, Nixon went to China. That was when China was ruled by, by Mao Zedong, one of the greatest monsters in history. And of course, FDR made common cause with Stalin, another one of the greatest monsters in history in World War II. And so I think at the end of the day, we still have a, a, a strategic comparative for why India and the U.S. want to line up with one another, regardless of what their form of government is. But certainly we should be pushing for Indian democracy. And, you know, the final point that I would just make in, on, in this discussion is to, again, highlight the point that's been made before about how uh, the, the COVID pandemic is really exposing the inadequacy of populist regimes. And you're saying, you know, the two worst countries right now are probably Brazil and India, both with right-wing nationalists in power. The United States last year was one of the worst countries, maybe the worst country, with our own right-wing nationalists in power. And look at how much better we're doing with a, uh, with a center-left technocratic government led by, led by Joe Biden. I mean, I don't know if this will break the fever of, of right-wing populism and nationalism, but certainly for anybody with an open mind, I think this discredits 
many of the promises made by these uh, right-wing buffoons. Yeah, by the way, a good column in the uh, Washington Post today by Ishan Thurur, right-wing nationalists failed during the pandemic, but they weren't the only one, but it focuses it on this. Max is not the only excellent columnist for the Washington Post. Um, although, he's, you know, he's our favorite. Um, uh, I'm part of a strong team. <laughs> a strong, a strong team. Um, Rosa, I mean, it, Max has just described a rationale. It makes perfect sense. But the sensibilities of the Biden team and the number of times they mentioned democracy and human rights and so forth are different from, you know, uh, the, certainly the Trump administration. And it, and it might be kind of hard for them to push forward and say, let's focus on the quad and the Indo-Pacific if, if, if India is pushed further in this direction or destabilized. What do you think? I think the Biden folks are pretty pragmatic. Uh, you know, I think, I think that they are people who very much want to help advance human rights and democracy, but I think they are smart enough to realize that we, we don't always have the ability to do that. And that they're, as you know, as Biden himself has said many times, you know, there are, we may be competing with China, we may be competing with other countries, but there are areas where we do clearly have common interests and we have to work together. So I, I'm not that concerned that it's going to either, it, that it's either going to be a, who cares, let's just, you know, any dictator who will further our, our aims, we're fine with, and that's the end of the story, or a, the most important thing is not compromising our values and keeping our hands clean. I think it is going to be a, a pragmatic case-by-case -case decision for this, these folks. So let me shift the focus a little bit here. Um, uh, uh, we were talking about Modi as a neo-fascist and talking about these populist leaders. And if we'd had this conversation six, seven months ago, we would be throwing them into a similar bucket with Donald Trump, but we've turned the corner and, you know, we have a different president and the different president has a different agenda. Um, and you would think, you know, America, you know, dodged a bullet and is out of the woods. But, um, Ed, you know, uh, looks like the Republican Party is, I haven't seen the news this afternoon, but it looked like they were going to kick Liz Cheney out of leadership in the House of Representatives um, because um, uh, uh, she spoke the truth and was sane. Uh, the Republican Party uh, of Utah, Mitt Romney stood up before them and was booed. Um, a recent census, uh, so, so the antibodies in the Republican Party are not ganging up on the the, the folks who supported the big lie and the guy who got impeached twice uh, and uh, and and was, you know, cor corrupt and ineffective as president. The antibodies are, 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 are targeting the ones who are sane and speaking the truth. And, you know, recent census data suggests the Republicans may have some advantages, uh, further advantages in winning back the House in the midterms and uh, margin in the Senate is. Is, is pretty close to nil. If the GOP took back over in 2022 and it was very much this Trumpist GOP, you know, we might look back on these first two years as kind of Indian summer for America, you know, that it was kind of like, hey, you know, things are getting better. 
Uh, but then we quickly turn back and the world starts looking at us again and saying, holy mackerel, the, you know, the roots are deep in this sort of neo-fascist, anti-truth, anti-science uh, part, part of the Republican Party. Um, you know, how, how deep a concern is that of yours, Ed? Uh, very deep. Um, you know, the, I, I think Biden's on the right track um, in, in terms of understanding what needs to be done to win the midterm elections next year. People need to, need to feel the money in their pocket, the job opportunities, the optimism that would get them out to vote in a midterm election. Um, and I think the Republicans are being quite helpful in um, doing nothing to try and regain the suburban college-educated vote they've been losing. Remember, the, that used to be the bedrock of their vote. They're, they're clearly not going to going back for that. And Biden's clearly continuing, as we saw last Wednesday night with his speech to, to the Joint Houses of Congress, um, clearly going for trying to make more inroads into the blue-collar Republican vote. So, you know, I, I'm fairly confident the Biden administration knows what it's doing, um, but that doesn't mean to say it's going to succeed in what it's doing. And if he loses control next year, if the Democrats lose one or other chamber, um, then um, we're going we're gonna to get complete blockage of anything for the next two years. We're going to get growing frustration. Um, and we're going to get, you know, a highly contested presidential election that the Democrats could lose. You're right, this four years would in those, in that horrific scenario, would look like a little sort of oasis in a, in a desert of, um, of sort of uh, uh, that American politics had become. So we hear about midterm elections being important. This one is really important. Max? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with, with what Ed is saying. And it occurs to me that if Republicans take power in 2022, it would not surprise me if the first item on their agenda is to impeach President Biden in retaliation for the impeachment of Trump. I have no idea what, what the grounds would be, but with this current Republican Party, it wouldn't shock me if they impeach Biden for stealing the, the election because so many Republicans believe the big lie, 70% in one recent CNN poll. And, you know, there was certainly some hope by many, including me, that after the insanity of the Trump years, after losing uh, the White House, after losing the Senate, after failing to retake the House, that the Republicans might sober up. But sadly, uh, there is zero evidence of it. They're actually seeming to get even crazier without Trump than they were with Trump. And you saw it this weekend with you know, Mitt Romney being booed uh, at his own uh, Utah Republican convention. I mean, it was just horrifying if you, look, if you watch those clips. I mean, just the rudeness, the fanaticism, the insanity of the grassroots Republican Party is appalling. Uh, you know, Liz Cheney, as you mentioned, it's probably not gonna happen today, but it could happen within the next month. She could lose her leadership position in the House because she will not go along with the big lie. And then final data point of dismay here is that this weekend there was a special election in Texas in Fort Worth to fill a House seat. And there was one Republican candidate who was explicitly running as an anti-Trump Republican with the support of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. And that guy got about 3% of the vote. So I just don't see a viable lane for, you know, never Trumpism in the Republican Party right now. And what you're seeing is really competition among the 2024 challengers like uh, Ron DeSantis from Florida, or Christy Nome from South Dakota, 
Nikki Haley, Josh Hawley, you name it, even Tucker Carlson, they're all trying to out-Trump each other, which is a terrifying spectacle to see. But, you know, the Republican Party, you know, bottom line, just uh, keeps getting worse and worse. And, and so that's going to present a greater, greater danger uh, to our democracy because they will be back in power in as soon as two years. And, and heaven help us what they're going to do next. Yeah, I mean, Rosa, Max ended up there starting the list of the 2024 candidates, and it seems to be the the way you choose a candidate in the Republican Party is find somebody who's done something horrible, and then they could become a candidate and then look for somebody who's done something worse. And if you look at Ron DeSantis or Christy Nome or Mike Pompeo or Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, or I mean, if, all of them have done things that should disqualify them. And yet those are the things that are giving them a chance. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't, I, you know, I mean, I, I want to celebrate the progress the Biden administration has made. And I want to celebrate the support for what the Biden administration um, has. But, but yeah. it's, it all seems very fragile. It's incredibly fragile. You know, I, I don't think that any of the extremism that we saw before the election and during the transition period is, has gone away. It's it's still there. Uh, I saw that Facebook has decided to let Trump himself back on Facebook now. Um, I think I think that what has happened uh, since January sixth is that it's been a little bit more invisible and less in your face for the rest of us. But it was still there. Uh, we just weren't seeing it. Now with Trump coming back on Facebook, I think we're all going to be seeing it again a little bit more. It's scary. I, I, I think on the one hand, logic, everything I believe tells me that as people begin to see that Biden's approach is working, uh, that that will bring some people over to him. And I, and I think it will, you know, I, I do think it will. I think again, for those suburbanites who the, who Trump lost, uh, I think they're going to keep tilting over towards Biden because they will be grateful to have a president who is sane and who is doing some good. Um, but I don't think it's going to have any real impact on the on the Trump base. And, and that's partly because I think for a lot of voters, you know, the old Clinton line of, uh, you know, or the economy stupid um, is in some ways wrong, or at least wrong for a lot of people, you know, that that everything we know, not only in the US, but in many other societies as well, tells us that for there are people who vote their pocketbooks and there are also a whole lot of people who vote their tribe, regardless of the impact of their pocketbooks. And I think as America degenerates back into a more tribal kind of country, uh, there are an awful lot of Americans who are just gonna vote their tribe no matter what, you know, even if it clearly hurts them in their pocketbook. And we're, we've seen that already. I mean, I think we've seen that already in Trump support over the last four years. Uh, uh, and I think we're going to continue to see it. I, I think that if if we want to decrease the support Trump has, it's not and Trump and the Trumpian wing of the party, which is dominant at the moment. Um, we're not going to do it just by saying, oh, but look, we're perfectly sane and we're doing good things because people are in, in such bubbles of their own that either they say, well, that's not actually true. I no longer believe anything you tell me. I believe some alternative narrative, which we think is bonkers, but they believe it. Um, and that's their information sources are telling them that, you know, or they're just going to say, I don't really care what's happening somewhere else. Um, I want to live differently. And this Trumpian wing of the Republican Party represents my values. Uh, and so I don't I don't care what the what's happening in the economy. I don't care what's happening in New York. I don't care what's happening anywhere else. So it's 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 going to be a real challenge. And I do not feel terribly sanguine about our collective ability to to 
address it successfully in the next few years. Is this why you're digging a, 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 an underground facility for yourself? <laughs> I'm going to invite you to my new compound, David, when I build it. It's, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's going to involve missile silos. Uh, all of our or all of our listeners are. are I mean, sure it's going to be a place of refuge for Lynn Cheney after she's drummed out of the Republican Party. <laughs> yeah, you know when Lynn when Liz Cheney is, you know, too radical and wacky for the GOP. Yeah, we've really crossed over into territory when Max Boot is a Democrat. Ed, <laughs> uh, Rosa mentioned something uncharacteristically was ahead of the news a little bit, uh, wrong a little bit, I mean, uh, because Trump has not actually been given uh, access back to Facebook. They will That's announce- the, They will announce- right? The New York Times headline this morning. No, they will um, announce it Wednesday wrong? morning. There okay. is this this, this oversight. Oh, okay, I see, I see. Yeah. I see. Uh, now the likelihood news. is <laughs> actually, it's the likelihood is that, uh, in the that he Times. will be allowed back. That that's the likelihood. Um, you think that's a big deal? And do you think this decision by Facebook is a big deal? I mean, Ron DeSantis in the Florida legislature just passed a bill that said um, that that the social media places could not um, ban politicians and would fine them for that. Now that seems unconstitutional, but it does seem like we're at a we're. we're kind of deciding right now what democracy in America is going to look like going forward. And of course, it's uh, it's the Facebook Supreme Court or whatever they call their sort of body of governance that um, ratifies these decisions um, that, that's that's doing it. Look, I, I'm sort of very much sort of cleft in two by, by the Twitter Facebook decision because um, anything that sort of vanishes the pollution of Trump from my mind is obviously sort of a net benefit to humanity. But on the other hand, I feel very uneasy about private platforms having such sway over, over speech. Um, and I don't know what the solution is, is to that. Will Trump being back on Facebook and quite possibly Twitter have an impact? I'm afraid it will, yes. I mean, clearly he's got very good at, 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 uh, access within his biosphere to um, you know the, loy the loyalists and the base. and is if anything tightening his grip on them. Um, in fact, not if anything, he's very, very certainly tightening his grip on them. Um, so that won't be affected, but there's a whole other universe that sort of he, he reaches through these more mainstream platforms, which he'll get access back to. So for sure, this is going to be helpful for Trump and for sure he's going to use it. I have very little confidence that Facebook's Supreme Court is going to be um, ha having much of a handle on real-time decisions of what Facebook should declare to be misinformation or disinformation um, and taken out of pe people's feeds and what isn't. They, I, they give no confidence on that score that they're in any way judicious or, or public-spirited in how they take their decisions. Now, I know this appeals body they set up is supposed to uh, reassure us on that count. Um, I think it's just a rubber stamp, frankly. Max, um, I'm sure your column is all ready to go for the moment after they put him back on Facebook. Um, what's your view on this? Because I mean, I, I understand why Ed is divided on it. I'm not at all divided on it. I have to be honest with you. It seems to me that there have long been laws that say you can't just promulgate lies. You and you can't 
incite riots. And there are a bunch of things that you're not allowed to do that are not protected speech. And uh, and Facebook, I mean, the, the, the flip side of all of this is that in, in fear of being accused of being overly woke or something else, Facebook and these other places are going to create an environment um, where the, those things that were not protected are protected. It's going to turn the system of free speech upside down. What do you think, Max? I think it's certainly the case that Facebook has been one of the prime uh, sources of, you know, uh, of garbage, which is being spewed out into our political system and is really poisoning the body politic. It's not just Facebook, obviously, it's Google, YouTube, it's Twitter, it's all of these social media that rely on these algorithms to feed uh, their users whatever they want to hear. And it turns out that a lot of people want to hear batshit, crazy conspiracy theories. And so these algorithms will, will give them what they want to hear and, and just flat out lies and, and, and pernicious nonsense. And I, you know, I think there has to be some reform of this process because uh, you know, I just don't know how democracy can function under those circumstances. You know, it's the old line of, from Pat Moynihan about everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own facts. Well, right now, a lot of people have their own facts. They live in this alternative universe of, yeah. of, of, uh, of, of fake news made up by Fox News and Trump and others. I mean, just recently you had, you know, the whole right wing was, was in high dudgeon because they claimed that Biden was going to ration red meat to four pounds a year. They just made that up. There was zero uh, evidence that this is the case. They just made it up and then they got all worked up about it. So, you know, this is just, I think, very corrosive and dangerous to our democracy. I don't know what the ultimate solution is. I, I, I'm with you, David. I think Facebook should keep Trump off because he did incite uh, this horrible attack on our government. But there are going to be a lot of Trumpkins out there no matter what. I think one one small technological fix, which has been suggested by Frank Fukuyama at Stanford, is to uh, for Congress to amend the law to force uh, these giant social media companies to give their users a choice of so-called middleware, which basically is an algorithm on top of their algorithm, but a more transparent algorithm that will actually weed out their feeds for stuff that is transparently false. And I mean, there are companies that are marketing these services right now, but a lot of these social media companies would have to amend the way that they run their algorithms to allow this to happen. And of course, for them, giving up control of their algorithm, that's you know hugely valuable intellectual property for them. But I think there has to be some kind of uh, public interest uh, mandate that's forced on these social media companies. I think if anything, there's, there is some agreement on left and right, although a lot of disagreement on what form that, that should take. But I think there is a general sense that these social media companies are becoming too powerful and almost completely devoid of any regulation. And so I, and obviously we don't want the government policing speech, but I think that there are ways to do it to try to encourage um, more of a fact check from the marketplace of ideas instead of just letting this garbage just spew completely unfiltered into our political system. Although, although in a way, Max, just to jump in on that, the problem is that um, <laughs> this has always been the problem with the metaphor of the marketplace of ideas is it makes it sound as if an idea is just another consumer good. And I, you know, the, the assumption that there's some self-correcting mechanism 
I think falls down, right? We've seen it fall down now. There is a marketplace for ideas and a good chunk of the American population wants to buy ideas that are premised on things that we know to be false, but that's what they want and they're getting it. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how we fix that because the, everything in our world, you know, our, our whole theory of politics, our whole, all of our political theories are premised on the idea that it is possible to distinguish between true and false, or at least truer and falser. And in a, in a, in a political culture in which increasingly the far right trusts no one, doesn't trust the government, doesn't trust the New York Times, doesn't trust CNN, doesn't trust science, doesn't trust anybody, uh, you know, doesn't trust the social media companies either. It's, it's really hard to know how we keep this from just being, hey, these are the ideas I want to buy, and I don't care if you tell me they're false. Um, I like them. Yeah, it's worse than that, I think, because if, 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 this system is is you know we sort of set the benchmark so that these social media companies are not allowed to um, weed out things that are actually dangerous for the public. It allows it gives license to the right to promulgate lies. It gives license to them to promulgate an alternative narrative of the United States uh, as though it were factual. And of course, that's what we've seen and. You know, in my view, um, and Rosie, you're the constitutional scholar here, but, you know, so this may be a terrible analogy, but, you know, if you run a chemical plant or you run a power plant, you're not allowed to pump poison into the water. You know, the society, you know, poison society, it's a dangerous thing. And there are, you know, we're, we're creating the potential of here is for these massive information dissemination mechanisms to to poison the collective mind of the United States with with lies. It's it seems like we've already seen how dangerous it is. No, it, and, and I think it it presents a real conundrum from a from a political theory perspective. I mean, I mean, our our theory of democracy is premised on the idea that that uh, the governed are rational actors, that they can consent or not consent to their government, that they, you know, and, and, and that and that itself is premised on the idea that there is this, you know, it's, it's sort of premised on, a, on a, a theory about knowledge that says there is such a thing as facts and we can all have shared facts. Um, and, you know, and, and when that breaks down, everything kind of breaks down. Ed, it sounds like time to update your book. <laughs> I, I very much I like Rose's critique of the term marketplace of ideas, because that does apply. That, that that does imply that ideas are just about how much money you put into them. I mean, my um, you know, my, my problem is Germany banned Mein Kampf as it should have. Um, in America, you can't ban Mein Kampf under the First Amendment. Um, and I don't know how you get around the First Amendment. I think we ought to qualify it for the reasons you laid out, David, but I can't imagine how we're going to qualify it. Um, and therefore, some of the more intermediate solutions that Max was discussing are gonna have to be what we do in the near term to address this poison, the, these chemicals that are being poured into the public square, which is, I think, my preferred, rather than marketplace of ideas, it's the public square. The public square is being polluted. Um, We've got to find ways other than sort of amending the American constitution that, um, that will stop this. And 
it's not going to be easy, but it's utterly, utterly urgent. Yeah. And, you know, what is a better example of that than the, the fact that there is a large movement among people on the right? And also, by the way, augmented by foreign actors who are meddling in our system to tell people in the midst of a pandemic that they should not take a vaccine, which can protect them from the pandemic. And so it's not just information, but if this is promulgated, it's supported, it's reinforced in that system, people die. And, uh, you know, we also saw the consequences of inciting revolution, uh, insurrection with a big lie, which is another Hitlerian concept. Well, here we are at the end of this time. Uh, I, I didn't mean this to take such a dark turn and, 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 uh, uh, well, okay, maybe those of you who have been listening to us for the past four or five years know that maybe I did, but but it's worth considering, and I think we've had a good discussion of it with uh, Rosa and Max and Ed, and we will continue to have discussions of this sort. Go to the dsrnetwork.com to find out more of what we've got coming. Uh, sign up, become a member, um, and uh, and and we'll we'll keep tackling these issues, uh, ideally with. Uh, these folks on a very regular basis. So thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. Uh, thank you, Max. Um, and uh, we'll see you all soon. And in the meantime, everybody, uh, stay healthy.